Hello, everyone. Welcome back to I See What You're Saying, the Disciplined Listening Podcast. I'm Michael Reddington, and today it is my pleasure to welcome our next guest, Philip Auerbach of Auerbach International and Auerbach Global Impact Foundation. Philip Auerbach is a cross-cultural communication expert. His organization, Auerbach International, provides translation services in over 80 languages as well as marketing services around the globe. Philip speaks eight different languages. He has traveled to over 55 countries. He has lived in five different countries and done business globally for decades. He holds degrees in both Japanese studies and international marketing. And today, I'm excited to have a conversation with him and learn what are some of the expectations, some of the common mistakes, some of the adjustments that we should all make when we are communicating either personally or professionally abroad, especially when we are facilitating business deals, and how can we all elevate our awareness of what people need to experience around the world as we continue, like we said, to develop these relationships and grow our business in an economy that's increasingly going global in a world that feels smaller and smaller every day. Before we get into the conversation, I certainly want to make sure we thank our sponsors. Of course, we have Humantel. Please go visit humantel.com and enter the code INQUASIVE25 for 25% off all of their best-in-class training for how to identify shifts in somebody's emotions by accurately evaluating their nonverbal communication, especially their facial expressions. Please also visit Emotional Intelligence Magazine at ei-magazine.com for their growing library of emotional intelligence-related resources, articles, videos, podcasts, educational events, and more. Please check them out. And of course, for the professional interviewers that may be watching, head over to certifiedinterviewer.com and check out the International Association of Interviewers, the organization dedicated to elevating the standards and furthering the industry of interview and interrogation. Check out their communities, check out their upcoming in-person and online training events, connect with other expert investigators, and of course, research and see if the certified forensic interviewer designation is right for you. So a big thank you to all of our sponsors. And now, without further ado, I introduce to you, Philip Auerbach. Good morning, Philip. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Michael. It's a wonderful pleasure to be here, and I appreciate your inviting me. Oh, my pleasure. After our previous conversation on your show, which I want to make sure that we have a chance to highlight as we go through, and we'll have links to all of your resources well as we go through, I was really impressed with your focus specifically on international communication, cross-cultural communication, understanding a lot of the differences that people experience and the impact that it can have on our personal and business relationships. And I'm really grateful that you were welcome to flipping the script here and, and having the conversation with me as well. So thank you for that. I think the first question that I would really like to ask, you know, I've cheated a little bit. We've spent some time together previously, but for the people that don't know you, Could you help us understand how your experience led you to focusing on your international business that you have currently? Yes, certainly. Um, I guess it started really in childhood where my father uh, was uh, one of the founders of the computer industry. Interestingly, he traveled a lot to Europe when I was very young and brought me back coins and stamps from other parts of the world and postcards. So I became aware from a very early age that there was a world out there beyond the narrow confines of the United States that most people focus on. Um, 
in later years, uh, I gained a master's degree in international business from a school called Thunderbirds, the primary school for international business. Um, and I've studied uh, eight languages. So uh, I speak French and Japanese fairly well at this point, but studied eight. Uh, and I've also lived in four countries, uh, France, Japan, China, and a wonderful place called Boputatswana in Southern Africa. Wow. Uh, and then finally, um, I visited about 56 countries, many of them multiple times. And so all of this um, international background has helped to form my current outlook, of course. Well, that's fascinating in a series of experiences that most people don't have. And especially here in the United States is, is I've cultivated relationships with friends internationally. I feel like a lot of times growing up here in the States, people aren't necessarily as motivated to travel internationally. Some certainly are, but there is so much to see and do here that's different from coast to coast that oftentimes people are satisfied with that and don't necessarily look beyond. So for you to be captivated by that at, at such a young age is, is pretty amazing. So we'll dive into this a little bit now and then we'll come back to it. But again, just for the purpose of setting the stage for our conversation, if you don't mind walking us through, how do you currently serve international businesses? Certainly. Um, my main company is called Auerbach International, and we're primarily a language and global marketing firm. What that means is that we translate and interpret anything, uh, any kind of business or technical document. Uh, a document, podcast, websites, video, uh, anything written or spoken, conference, meeting, phone call, into 120 languages, two are from English or any other combination for that matter. Uh, we also do global marketing consultancy, so we can identify com com countries that companies can expand into and the strategies to launch them there. And then finally, as you know, because you've been a guest, uh, we have the podcast series, Global Gurus, Stories of International Business. And that is for another resource for people to learn about different aspects of doing business with other people's cultures and countries. Thank you very much. And again, that just adds layers to why I feel like this conversation is so important. I feel like I've been very fortunate. I've traveled and worked in not maybe a third of the countries that you have. I think I'm approaching 20, but but certainly not where you are. And I feel like I've been very fortunate to have some of the experiences that I've had and to open a window and an understanding into some of these things. But it's very much a developing understanding on my part. And I feel like when I think about what I do or where I come from, interview and interrogation, which people go truth and deception, where they shouldn't, but they jump there right away. And immediately when I have conversations with people, I get trapped into so many of the myths that have propagated that space for so long. And I feel like there's a, a series of coaching that we have to go through to help people understand, okay, this is what we've always been told, but this is what it's really like. This is what the science says. This is how it really applies. So maybe from an international communication standpoint, we can start there. What do you feel like are some of the most important real differences and considerations Americans or, or Westerners, if you will, need to really keep in mind as they develop these business or even personal relationships abroad? It's a wonderful question. Um, I think the primary one first is that Americans, not all, of course, but many Americans proceed from a hidden bias of arrogance. And this, um, this appears very strongly in our country on the, around the 4th of July 
when you get politicians who say absurdities like this is the greatest country, America is the greatest country in the world. And, uh, and then people take that and assume that everyone should be like us or would want to be like us and everyone wants to come here, which all of which are total mythology. Um, so the one, one thing to be aware of, of course, is the often hidden American bias of arrogance. And it can come across like, why don't you speak English? Or why doesn't everyone speak English that we're dealing with? So that's a you know, very simple one. Um, another is just differences in, I guess, differences in understanding the meaning of certain words. Uh, and this gets involved in translation issues, but it's also that in, in aspects of communication, when we say certain words, we, of course, have our American assumptions about them, and those don't necessarily communicate in other cultures. So, for example, uh, individualism, we think that's something to be prized and is wonderful. Um, but in East Asia, actually, in most of the world, not just in East Asia, the Middle East, South Asia, elsewhere, um, it's a negative trait because the, uh, most cultures value collectivism or, or the emphasis on what benefits the group, not the individual. Um, a simple word like retirement, we consider that um, like a, a withdrawal to a place of seclusion, a wonderful state to get to. In other languages, the word retirement translates as basically pensioning. Uh, and in Spanish, it translates as the great word, the, the word for happiness. So again, we just have different perceptions of what those may mean. Um, but also, um, I, I think in terms of communication, uh, ways that we would proceed to, to assume certain communication modes. So for example, um, Westerners, uh, I'll say Westerners or Americans, but it, this applies to Europeans as well. Um, Americans would emphasize the fact about something. Uh, when we talk about um, uh, like yes or no questions, we would answer questions based on the fact, did it happen or didn't it happen, as opposed to um, the, the expectation of what would happen. And this gets involved with very simple questions like, like, like yes or no. Um, and Americans often will travel abroad and talk about that other peoples are being dishonest. You know, I asked a question and they they said one thing, they meant another, and it's just not right, and that's dishonest, and how can I trust them? Uh, well, the opposite is also true, and I hope I'll get into that, um, about uh, cultivating relationships, which is extremely important. If I don't ask that, please do ask me. Um, <laughs> uh, but basically, um, yes or no questions, uh, Americans will answer, and in Western languages, we answer based on the fact of something. Did you see the movie? Uh, did you see the movie yesterday? No, I didn't see the movie. Um, as opposed to, um, could you get this report to me by Tuesday? Um, an American would likely say, um, probably not. I've got these other priorities. You know, unless you shift my duties around, I really can't get it to you by Tuesday. That's just, you know, the way it is. And besides that, you want me to attend these three meetings. Um, whereas in many other cultures, especially in Asia, um, 
one would always say, yes, I can get the report to you by Tuesday, because that's what the boss expects. Now, how I'm going to get it done, I don't know. Um, and by the way, I'm not going to ask a lot of questions, because to do so indicates my disrespect for the boss, that the boss obviously has a lot of other uh, priorities, and my questions are, you know, sort of low on, uh, low on the totem pole, and therefore I won't bother to ask the boss. Um, but, but my expectation is that, yes, I will get the report done by Tuesday, even though I have absolutely no idea how I'm going to get it done. So when, and then if it's not done, um, then, you know, an American boss would be basically angry. You didn't keep your promise. You didn't keep your commitment, whatever. Um, whereas an Asian would try to explain it away with circumstances. I'm terribly sorry. Something came up and uh, this, this, and this happened. And, you know, I it just couldn't get it done, but I will get it done for you by tomorrow, something like that. Um, and, you know, we do that in English also, with Americans also, but, but it's more common in Asia just to, again, answer the expectation as opposed to the fact or something. Um, I, I guess one of the other ways this happens with yes or no questions sometimes is um, Americans will tend to praise people, praise or criticize publicly in a, in a group meeting. Um, and in the terms of communication, that is basically very, I don't want to say the word dangerous, but it's basically um, uh, very impolite to do uh, in many ways. So if you're dealing with, um, again, with communication issues, uh, it's, it's always best to praise someone. You, you can praise someone publicly, but if you have to give praise or criticism, it's often best to do it privately, like one-on-one. -on -one. Um, if you're going to praise someone publicly, gee, you did a fantastic job on that report, or gee, um, that really helped us to win this great contract. Very often, an Asian would self-deprecate, saying, um, well, you know, I really didn't contribute that much to it, or, you know, it was really a group effort, or, um, you know, you're, um, you know, it re I really wasn't that as capable as you're thinking, um, where an American would look at that as being, you know, lack of self-confidence and how can you lie like that? Because obviously you gave this great contribution where they would look at it as, um, again, coming from modesty, coming from um, what's appropriate for the situation. And you answer questions often based on what's appropriate for the situation, not in terms of black and white, did this happen or didn't it happen? That's a great point. And as you've called out throughout the illustration that you made, while many of these things are thought to be or have been seen, I would, it's probably a better way to say it, typically more maybe in an East Asian culture versus a Western culture, there are individual exceptions as well, where we do see people in Western cultures being self-deprecating, sharing credits, answering to the expectations instead of the question. So in, in some areas of the world, it is culturally more culturally embedded or expected, whereas here in the United States, where a little bit of the individualism is certainly I was going to say encouraged, that's the right word for now, is more encouraged. We see less of it. 
I would love to get back to cultivating relationships. I'd love to get back to the concept of saving face, which is really where I think a lot of this ties back to and something that often is not paid enough attention to in Western cultures, particularly in the United States. But I'd like to go all the way back to one of the first things you said about the arrogance of Americans. And I'd love to ask a couple of questions and get your ideas on this. So for me, I grew up in the Northeast. I grew up in the New England area. I lived in North Jersey. I was in and out of New York City. Now I live in the Southeast. So the pace of life is so different between the two. I grew up basically in the Boston area. My wife grew up in Alabama. We may as well have grown up in two different countries, it, it feels like, from times. So the first question I have is about the perception of this arrogance, because it can change domestically here, depending on where somebody is from in the United States and certainly abroad as well. So is some of that, do you think, tied back to the perception of the pace in life that we keep here in the United States? Obviously, it's going to be more pronounced in urban areas and in the Northeast, but even something for me, the last international trip I had prior to COVID was in Poland. And for me, especially when I travel by myself, I want to get my meal and I want to go back to what I was doing. This obviously isn't a social occasion. I'm here by myself. But yet here I am at this restaurant in Krakow alone. And it was probably a 90 minute dinner experience. And I'm sure the servers thought I was crazy for trying to get up and, and get out of there. So for me, I guess the first question I'll come back to is. Is some of the perception of arrogance you believe related to the perception of the pace that we keep here in the United States often? Certainly uh, parts of the United States are slower than others. There's yeah. no question about that. And the concept of friendship or um, if you've moved into a new neighborhood, and I, I asked this over the weekend to a woman who used to live, I think, in, in um, Texas and Georgia. Um, uh, for example, when, when I was a child, this was way back in the, in the dark ages, but my mother would always bake a cake and take it over to a new neighbor's house when someone new moved on to the block. And that doesn't happen much anymore. Um, so there, there are different ways of, you know, friendship and, you know, just cultural behavior. So I'm not so much talking about that. What I am speaking about is the American assumption that often we are the best, we know what we're doing, uh, everyone else should become like us. So I'll give you an example from, as I mentioned, I've got a language translation agency. Um, I'll give you um, an example of a brochure that someone asked us to translate. And the line in English was, no one else anywhere does what we do as well as we do it. We offer the best technology, best equipment, and best geographical expanse that backed by capable people with world-class expertise. Now, on the face of it, that is you know, probably factual based on what this company does. But from a European point of view, even, one would never say that because, again, just the English sounds very arrogant. And so to translate it into other languages... We can translate it, but it does, just doesn't work, which is why if you use, if you rely on artificial intelligence, you'll get the words, but you won't get the acculturation, the softening. Another example, we are recognized as one of America's best companies, repeatedly named as one of the best quality brands, one that sees potential in new markets and in individual people. 
Now that's less strong, but it's still, we're the best, you're not, therefore come to us. Um, that approach normally doesn't work. And, and people go into international relationships often with this attitude that, um, look, this is what we do in the United States. Why don't you try it this way? Um, and, you know, maybe it will work, maybe it won't. But it's better if you have that point of view, it's best to say, um, this is what we do in the United States. Do you think it would work here in your country? Or how do you think we could uh, tailor it, soften it, change it so that it would work, it, so that it might work here? Something like that. So, again, it's a very different approach. Yeah. And I like that example and kind of true or true. I like both of those examples. Two trains of thought there in kind of chronological order. From my experience, traveling domestically and internationally, I feel like often and rightfully so people are proud of where they're from. So here in the United States, Texas is the best. New York is the best. California is the best. Illinois is the best. I'm sorry for the other 46 states I don't have the time to mention. But people from those areas, more often than not, tend to believe that that area is the best because that's just where they're from. And as I've traveled internationally, I spent a fair amount of time in Canada. And when I'm in Canada, thankfully, it's more so playful than others. But when I'm in these conversations, I'm hearing why Canada is the best. When I'm in the UK, the same thing. When I'm in Europe, the same thing, particularly Germany, a lot of the same thing. And for me, when I hear that, I don't necessarily hear that as arrogance. I think I'm the best and people need to want to be here or conform to be here. I hear that more as a pride in association of where people are from, because that is what they know. That is what they like. That's what they've been socialized with. And I would imagine that from a government perspective, to get back to the example you gave earlier, that most countries at one time or another are espousing, dare we say, propagandizing at some point, how great their country is and how people should aspire to be more like them and their people. So right. I don't necessarily see that to be a purely American trait, although when you consider the size and the impact, good or bad, and sometimes both, that we have on the world, it gets, I would imagine it gets associated more with the United States than other countries. Um, well, first of all, there's nothing wrong with pride in where you come from or pride of nationality, but that's different. Um, the Europeans, I think, they, they can be very proud of who they are, but uh, especially, you know, in the uh, more than 50 years after World War II, um, you know, the, the idea of empire has really, well, except for Mr. Putin in the Ukraine, um, and Mr. Xi in China, um, uh, the, the idea of empire really has, has vanished from the world. So, you know, the British, the French, the Dutch, and the others who, and even the Americans, you know, who created these empires and thought they were superior to other people, the white man's burden and manifest destiny. These are historical trends that justified this. Um, I think, you know, we've all toned down that we now know that other people's have equally valid points of view. And I don't think a European would want to impose his point of view necessarily on others. Pride is one thing, but imposing is another. Um, but I do find that in, in many cases, again, Americans come into a situation, it's that, look, they may not know. You know if you've never traveled abroad before, you, you simply don't know what you don't know. And so it's per perfectly understandable that American would proceed from that point of view. 
Um, but when you are abroad and you encounter this, um, you quickly learn that you know, other points of view are equally valid and therefore to tone it down. Um, so, you know, so yes, it works both ways and there's no simple rule about it, but simply, you know, the, it's really an awareness that when people travel, when Americans travel abroad for the first time, uh, travel abroad either for tourism or for business, um, to basically tone it down and, and respect other people and to know that their ways are equally as valid. And again, we, we often don't, don't like to face that in just personal relationships, but that's a, you know, it's a wonderful attitude to have. And I, I think the, the explanation there is, is really spot on. Often we don't know what we don't know. And one of the blessings and curses equally of operating here in the States is often there is enough business here to sustain us. There are enough things tourist-wise to do to sustain us. So if we look at Europe, I certainly would have to fake any number I put on this. I don't know it, but I would imagine a substantial percentage of companies in Europe do business across borders in Europe. I would imagine a high number of people who travel and experience tourist events do that across borders in Europe because of the proximity and public transportation and all the things that are there in order to make that work. We're here in the United States. Again, it's a lot of it is can be done domestically. So I do think it's very fair to say that a lot of times we don't know what we don't know. It's easy. Under stress, we often go to what we know so we can expect the same thing from others. And I love the point you made about raising our awareness prior to some of these engagements. How do we need to potentially alter how we behave, how we act, where we sit, how we eat, the words that we use, how we position ourselves? And two funny examples from my career, teaching in Abu Dhabi and getting stuck in a handshake that had to have lasted north of five minutes. The most uncomfortable handshake I've ever had in my life with a guy who was being extremely nice and extremely thoughtful. He just shook my hand throughout the entire conversation. Then taking my wife to the Mediterranean and having my colleague over there who was Greek, give her a big hug and a kiss when he met her and have that be a shock to her system. Because again, being from the South here in the United States, you know, our, our rules of distance and spacing are different. So if we're going to talk about building that awareness, what are some of the most important things Westerners can be aware of as they begin to travel to other places in the world, things that we should educate ourselves on so we can be more effective in our communication and relationship building? Oh, great question. Um, you mentioned Abu Dhabi, so let me start with that one. Uh, uh, I, I know in other episodes of your podcast, you've talked about the concept of saving face. And this is, this is very critical, where in English and in Western languages, there's no problem saying no. We, when, you learn, when we learn a language, well, if we learn a European language, we learn the word yes and no very quickly in you know, the first two weeks or something. Um, in other cultures, especially in East Asia and in the Middle East, um, one strives very hard not to say no. Saying no uh, makes the, your counterpart, the person you're speaking to, lose face. And what that basically means is and whether this is whether you see it this way doesn't matter. But from the person's point of view, um, it's uh, 
destroying is the wrong word. It's offending, offending the person's dignity, self-respect, um, status, and hierarchy. So one, as, as an aside, um, one of the issues that Americans need to be aware of, and I'll come back to my story, um, is hierarchy. We assume that the United States was created as a country to get rid of, um, to get rid of titles, to get rid of um, inherited aristocracy, inherited privileges. You, you are what you make your life to be, not what your inherited, uh, your, your inherited entitlement might be. Um, and so we go into relationships assuming that everyone is equal. And we do this in a way which I find personally very offensive, that Americans assume um, that they will call me, for example, and they'll start on a call or on an email. Hello, Philip. I, you know, my name is this and this and this and this is what I'd like you to, buy, to sell you. You know, have we met before? Why are you calling me by my first name? Now, I know this is an American approach and I'm now used to it. But if you're going to other countries, you do not start with a person's first name unless you're introduced and given permission. So in other languages, it's always Mr., Ms., Mr. or Mrs. or Miss. By the way, there is no word for Ms. in other languages. Um, so ladies, if you're listening to this, after a certain age, if you're not married, uh, you automatically become um, Madame, Frau, uh, Senora, something. But uh, even, you know, it doesn't matter. When you're younger, you're Mademoiselle, Fräulein, Senorita, but after that, you're automatically changed over. So um, you address a person by his title, his or her title, doctor, professor, monsieur, madame, whatever the case may be. Um, during the conversation, if the person gives you permission, then you address the person by the first name. But you do not start that way because that's an American approach of equality, which does not work. Um, there's tremendous hierarchy in other parts of the world, which Europeans and others respect very highly. We don't like hierarchy. We don't like being told what to do and how to do it and all of that. Um, we call our bosses by their first names, where you do not do that necessarily in other cultures. Um, and so you just, so again, there's a hierarchy that's built in. You respect that when you're visiting other countries, even though we may not do it, you dress up, you wear a suit, or men would wear a suit, ladies would wear. You know, dresses or business suit. Uh, it may be hot and steaming. It doesn't matter. You do it anyway because this is part of the formality of other cultures and part of the hierarchy that you simply respect. Um, the story I wanted to tell you again is part of Saving Face. Um, again, Saving Face is um, you don't you try not to say no. You try not to say something that might. Um, might be considered uh, impolite or um, stripping a person of his dignity somehow. So uh, in just before COVID, I was in Dubai and I was introduced um, to, I think, a sheikh who was basically head of the Abu Dhabi Chamber of Commerce. Um, and we did lots of pleasantries. And there's, I want to get back to about when you first meet someone, what you do and how you do it. Uh, but basically, after about a half hour of pleasantries, we plunged into business and he asked me, and he knew I was in the language business, he said, um, I'm, organizing a, um, I'm organizing a conference in Sudan in February, this was in December of 2019, 
uh, sorry, December of 2018. Um, um, I'm organizing the conference in February, um, and I'd like to give you the contract to provide interpreters from people coming all over the world to this conference. Well, of course, ka-ching, ka-ching, ching. This is, you know, I'd like to give you the contract. It didn't ask the price. It didn't ask for a quote. I just, fantastic. This is outstanding. Of course, I'd love the contract. And then I had to say no. And I had to say no uh, because, um, and I, I said this very truthfully, um, and I said, you know, thank you so much. This is a tremendous honor that you've given me. This is, uh, we would love to do this project. We can easily do this project for you. However, uh, I'm quite sure you are aware, and what is quite sure, not, not I am sure, that would be very American, very certain. I'm quite sure you are aware that the United States has sanctions on Sudan and that American companies are not necessarily able to, to work there or to business there. Um, uh, and, and, therefore, and, and we have federal government contracts, and I'm terribly sorry, but we would jeopardize our own contracts if we would, would fulfill your request. Now, the other part of that was, um, at the time, the dictator of Sudan was Omar al-Bashir, who was horrible thug, horrible, despicable person who brought us the Darfur massacres many years ago. And now I do not want to do anything to empower him or his economy. Um, so, but that was the way that I said no very politely and saved face for the, the requester. That's a great example. Great example. You said you want to get back to how we should conduct ourselves when we're meeting people. I think that's uh, yeah. a, a great thought. I don't want to pass, walk past that. Okay. So when an American meets someone for the first time in a networking group here, for example, hi, my name is so-and-so. This is my company. Here's my business card or, you know, here's my, let's exchange mobile business cards, whoever we do it. Um, what do you do? That's it. So what's your name? What do you do? Your, you, who you are, who, your business is your identity. Um, in other cultures, you, you basically don't do that. This is, uh, so an American often will go abroad for the first time uh, a bit for a business meeting again. Uh, people pass around business cards or identities, whatever they do. Uh, the American puts immediately into his pocket, doesn't really look at it, puts it in his pocket, gives the card, and that's it. Um, and then you plunge into business. Um, thank you so much for inviting me. Yes, I had a great flight. Now, I know you asked about our product and service, and this is what we can do, and this is how it would benefit your company. And I've done a lot of research about your firm. And this is how, again, this is, um, uh, we know how it can help you. Uh, uh, uh absolutely not. First of all, if you're given a business card, you look at it because the business card will say the person's title. And the person's title, again, is by hierarchy. Um, and if the person is a higher status than you, then of course you treat the person with dignity and respect befitting that person's rank in the hierarchy. Um, and you, you defer as needed. Uh, you let the person talk and you let the person ask questions and so forth. Um, uh, if you're in Asia, especially, uh, the title is very, very important because hierarchy is far more valued than here. Um, if you're in Japan, you put the business card in your left coat jacket pocket. And again, if you're a man, you wear a jacket or wearing a suit because that's closer to the heart, basically. Um, and you don't put it in your suit pocket, which is very considered very impolite. 
or your jacket pocket below, which is impolite. So you put it above near your uh, lapel. Um, but the title will tell you, again, the person's rank and hierarchy. Um, now, all of this is also important because in most, most other cultures, starting just Latin America, Latin America, Africa, Mideast, East Asia, South Asia, even in Europe, in Europe as well, um, you do not, absolutely do not plunge into business on the first sentence out of your mouth, or the second sentence out of your mouth. Um, what's important in most cultures is for the, your counterpart and your counterpart's company um, to feel that that person or that company can trust you and develop a relationship with you. Uh, and that's really critical. And the way you do that is talking about everything else except for business. And you talk about um, issues that we might not raise here, we might not talk about here. Um, tell me about your family in Brazil, for example. Tell me about your family. You know, do you have a, a husband or a wife? How many children do you have? What ages are they? What do they do? Where do they go to school? Where are they working? Um, all of that. Um, questions that might be considered impolite or certainly illegal in this country. Um, uh, tell me, you know, what sports do you like? What music do you like? What kind of um, books do you read? What kind of movies do you see? What kind of, where do you like to go? What do you like to do for fun? What do you like to do for hobbies? So tell me about your life in general, uh, art, music, um, uh, sports. Tell me you know, everything else except for business. And this is very important because it's from these other aspects of life that one cultivates trust and relationships. And that, again, is very important. Now, this, again, gets into, um, uh, again, sort of the, not so much the arrogance, but the yes or the no. Um, uh, could, you know, could we do, um, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, the, the relationships are important because, for example, if you have a contract with this company um, and for whatever reason your, um, your supply chain doesn't work and you are unable to ship the product in time and get it, you know, get it to your client in time overseas, um, an American approach, not always, but an American approach would be, I will sue you because you've now damaged our operations. Um, and it's not always that way, but I can be angry at you because you've damaged our operations. Whereas other peoples would say, um, of course, I'm not going to sue you. That would never occur to me to sue you because we've developed this trust and rapport and strong relationship. And I know you're trying the best you can. I know these circumstances are beyond your control and you will fulfill the order as soon as you're able to fulfill it. And that's what maintains the relationship, that base, that strength, that it doesn't matter so much what the contract says. It's the letter, you know, the yes or no was able to fill it, but rather, again, the circumstances and the spirit behind the spirit behind the contract is much more important, and that is based on the relationship that you've cultivated. And what I'm hearing there, with cultural specificities, of course, intact, really is a more productive way to communicate globally, including here in the United States. Now, sometimes you run into situations where people say, I only have three minutes or you've only got five minutes and we need to get right to the point. I understand that we're going to run into those audiences from time to time. But generally speaking, taking the time to acknowledge somebody 
for who they perceive themselves as not communicating based on our default expectations, but creating the communication experiences that they require in order to commit to generating the outcomes that we need, whether that's slowing the pace, whether that's looking at the business card, whether that's asking them about their family. And some of that, again, is true here domestically. I grew up in the Northeast, get to the point or get out. Now I live in the Southeast. And if I have a 60 minute discovery meeting scheduled with somebody, I'm probably not going to get to business for the first 25 to 35 minutes. Now that's not structurally the same as some of these other cultures that you're discussing, but often the conversation unfolds the same way. So for me, I feel like some of that comes down to creating the, or generating the confidence in ourselves to be able to learn, adapt, to what other people need, what other people expect to create those experiences for them, help them save face, treat them the way they feel like they need to be perceived throughout these conversations. Yes, it's very true. So again, it's not just black and white. It does happen in this country as well, but Americans tend, we, we're in a very fast paced society. Um, sorry, I mean, I'm not sure if you could hear it. There's a motorcycle outside my window, very impolite. Uh, don't sweat it. If you want, I can, I'll mark the time. Let me see where we're at here. I'll mark the time. And if you um, just want to start by saying we're in a very fast, I mean, America's a very fast paced society, pick it up there and we'll run. So Americans are in a very fast paced society. We invented, um, you know, instant, most everything, an instant toast, instant breakfast, instant meals, uh, you know, McDonald's, all of that. So we expect everything to go very quickly. Um, and in some parts of the country, as in the South, things are slower, absolutely. Um, but in many cases, we're still in a you know, very rapid society where we expect um, fast results. We're also in a, what's, what is called sociologically an informal society. And I touched on this a little bit. Um, and informal societies, when uh, I'm in San Diego, you're in Maine, I can pick up the phone and call you or email you and you know, talk to you about my product or my service, and you can do business with me without even having met, even potentially without even having a conversation. Um, that is far less likely in other parts of the world where, again, the relationships are very important, where they want to get to know you and know your service and have a conversation with you either by phone or by meeting or by Zoom or however. Um, so those societies are more formal. Um, the other way that this shows or manifests is through, through meals. Um, the American business meal is fairly quick, um, you know, an hour, maybe an hour and a half or something. We do not drink, maybe in the South, but for the most part, you don't drink alcohol at the meal. Um, it's at lunch, maybe dinner is different, but at, at lunch you don't. Um, and, you know, they're fairly quick and you, you know, a few pleasantries and then you get to the point and it's a working lunch where, again, meals in most parts of the world are the mechanism by which people can get to know you. Not the only way, you know, they can do it through the personal meeting, but certainly is the, the main way or a main way that people can get to know you. And so it's about having proper manners. Um, and if you don't know proper etiquette, there are class, you know, personally, I could teach you, but also... There are, you know, there are etiquette courses or etiquette trainers who can teach you how to hold a knife and fork and how to eat in a European way and so forth. And um, which glasses where for, you know, when you've got three glasses in front of you. 
uh, and the, the, the silverware that is above the plate, what that's all about. Um, but mostly, uh, so part of it is etiquette and manners, and part of it is really, again, talking about all of these other subjects except for business, so people can get to know you. And sometimes you may have two or three meals with different members of your counterpart's company before there's uh, any talk of business. And again, it's a way for them to get to know you so they can trust you, so that whatever contract they derive, the spirit of the contract will override the letter of the contract. And that's a great point. Really quick before I forget, if people aren't interested in taking etiquette classes or doing their research before they travel someplace, at least don't be the first one to pick up your fork. At least be smart enough to look at everybody else at the table, see what they're doing, and then mimic that. I've found myself doing that too many times, but at least don't rush to eat. I don't care how hungry you are. I'm a walking, talking Snickers commercial. If I don't eat, I can get angry. But at least, you know, watch what everybody else is doing first if, if you're not going to do the research in advance because you're correct, obviously. But the, the meals are such an important part of that process. Um, but you also touched it at the end. Now I made the meals joke. I'm forgetting where we were going to go after that. But at the end of that, you made a point as well that I'm totally spacing right now. When I'm not going to edit this out either. People can laugh at me for, for spacing this out. Um, but when you, when you are, oh, it's the relationship piece. That's where I wanted to go with this. The spirit of the contract versus the letter of the contract. So many times that can become so important here in obviously abroad, but here in the States as well. And if we don't take the time to get to know people, if we don't take the time to build the relationships, if we don't take the time to create the communication experiences that they need, then if, and when we need to rely on the spirit of the contract, we can't do it because we haven't developed that relationship. And I do feel like all too often people do fall back to, this is what we agreed on, do it or else. When there are so many better alternatives out there, if the relationship is created along the way. Yes, that's very true. But again, it's not just black and white, it's not just abroad in the United States, but certainly because of COVID, um, we've learned uh, that you know, sudden emergencies or sudden issues can impose themselves anytime. Uh, so I think we're now more conditioned to that, which is wonderfully beneficial. Uh, and people are much more about, uh, Americans are much more open to developing relationships, including through Zoom or through Teams, whatever the case may be. Um, and perhaps a little more relationship oriented than we were before. Um, but it's still, Again, we're a very informal business society. The only cultures that are more informal than we are are Australia, New Zealand, and Israel. Uh, so we're all the way over to a huge end of the spectrum. And the most formal cultures in the world uh, on a continuum are Japan and Korea. The Europeans are somewhat in the middle. Um, and so it depends which country, but more or less in the middle and a little more toward our side of it. Um, but the point is that if you go into a, a relationship or into an international um, venture, assuming informality, assuming disrespect of hierarchy, assuming that you can show up in a T-shirt and blue jeans, uh, except if you're in high tech, that's different. But you know, <laughs> most industries um, or the music business, whatever. But again, in most industries, um, you know, just don't do it. Just be mindful that there are other ways of doing things. And there are books, there are podcasts, there are lots of online resources about how to do business in other countries and cultures. 
Um, and by the way, that's that's important as well. That um, just because a country, two countries speak the same language, does not mean that they have the same outlook. Uh, so the U.S. And, and the U.K. are very good examples. We do speak a common language, but words have different meanings, and this gets involved with translation. So, for example, if a, if a Briton says, um, "Let's tape," if an American says, "Let's table it," let's table the discussion for later. Let's table the discussion. That means postpone it for later. If a Briton says, "Let's table it," that means to decide it now. So. Again, these are just different um, understandings of language. Even in Canada, uh, I'll ask you, Michael, do you know what a hydro bill is? I do not. So a hydro bill, it sounds like water, right? Because they've got an abundance of water. Um, a hydro bill is your electric bill. Uh, and I presume because electricity has been traditionally generated by hydro. Um, but a hydro bill in this country is different. So um, just because you speak the same language, just know that um, you know words, words and meanings can uh, words can have different meanings, of course, in different contexts. And of course, um, ex cultural expectations are different. The beer in Britain is much stronger than it is here, and they drink it all the time at lunch and at dinner, um, and that's just expected. So if you can. If you can't hold your liquor, then you've got to take some other measures to compensate. <laughs> Sound advice. You mentioned the translation piece. For me, when I was in interview and interrogation and had to conduct translated conversations, one of the things that I tried to stress to the people that were translating for me were mirroring the specific verbiage, the specific context, the specific intentions to the best of their ability. Because clearly, if I could speak their language, I wouldn't need a translator. So I'm a little bit in the dark here. I've got their nonverbal communication that I can begin to build patterns on over a period of time. And culturally, some of that will be different, of course. But when we talk about understanding what they're saying, for me, trying to capture the specificity of the word choice, the intention, the context, the tone, all of those things were important because what you said, there's some real comical examples out there of people that thought they were delivering one message and was ended up delivering something that was entirely offensive or out of context to somebody else. Right. So with your specific focus on translating, I guess a two twofold question here. One would be, what are some of the biggest considerations to keep in mind? And two, I know you've given us some already. Do you have any highlights or examples of translations that maybe could have or prior to getting to you did go horribly wrong based on people making assumptions? Uh, well, the two examples I gave about arrogance, um, again, if you're writing a brochure and you're not, you, you may not be aware of it, but just you know, the, the first question that people would ask is, you know, who do you think you are, Disney? Or who do you think you are, Microsoft? Um, who are you to make this statement? Well, yes, you may be the best in your industry, but people don't necessarily know your industry. Um, so, you know, tone it down. Not that we are the best, but we are among the best. Or we are among, you know, what we are a leader, not the leader, something like that. Um, some of it comes from, simple English uh, people people can be very sloppy in their writing 
Um, Americans are extremely sloppy in their speaking, not you, but many Americans are extremely sloppy in their speaking. Um, but in writing, it's, and they're, they're bet much better in writing, but it's still not precise in many cases. So, for example, um, we, got, we got something to translate once, and the title of the manual was School Bus Exhaust Catalog. Now, what the hell is a catalog? What are you promoting? Exhaust from school buses? What, what, what does that mean? I have absolutely, absolutely no idea what that meant until like, we asked the client, oh, it's, it's the, the um, in other languages, you say the pieces, it's the, the attachments that go onto a school bus to, sh to prevent exhaust or to uh, reduce the exhaust. Mm -hmm. Ah, that's different. School bus exhaust prevention equipment catalog or something. That would have been more, more accurate. Um, the very simple sentence. Um, Please buy me the tickets for the concert on Saturday. Um, it, today's Tuesday. You, you know, please buy me the tickets for the concert on Saturday. So when is the concert? You know, I'm asking you to buy the tickets on Saturday, or is the concert on Saturday? It would be clearer to say, um, please buy on, could you please buy me on Saturday the tickets for the concert? Or could you please buy me... Um, buy me tomorrow the ticket for the concerts on the concert on saturday so again these these simple things would make a big difference um what's often missing uh, is uh this well the assumption about artificial intelligence that artificial intelligence um people are assuming increasingly that um that does you know that's all you need right now for translating and you know i don't have to bother with anything else well that's a huge mistake um artificial intelligence does work it works very well it does not work well in many languages it does not work well in all languages it especially does not work well with uh, expressions with what i would call acculturation um and i'll give you a simple example i tried this yesterday um, on Google, Google Translate. Um, if I say the simple sentence, I'm on the fence about coming to your party. Um, in English, to be on the fence means to be undecided about. Now, sometimes, uh, it, sometimes AI does it correctly. Like in Spanish, it, uh, well, in, um, in French, it, um, so in French, it became, I'm about, I'm about to come to your party. It's very different. Now, sometimes I've seen it in French. I am undecided about to come to your party. That's accurate. But yesterday it became, I am about to come to your party. That's not what it means. Um, it did correctly say in Spanish, I'm undecided. But in German, it became, I'm not sure if I should come to your party. Close, but no cigar. That's not exactly right. So simple expressions like, so A, don't depend solely on AI, especially if you've got something that is client facing, like brochures, um, brochures or videos or websites, for example, that, you know, if you want it done accurately, the best way to do it is um, to rely on a professional language agency such as ours, because we use what's called machine translation um, software to do the first pass. If it can be done, not all of it can be done, not all, not all formats, not all languages. Uh, and then absolutely a human professional master's level translator who speaks that terminology, who speaks that, um, 
speaks the vocabulary and the terminology and has 10 years experience to then do a second and third pass to make sure that it's done accurately. Um, I'll give you another um, wonderful example. This was told to me by um, a Danish friend. He knew that I knew what he was saying. Um, so he deliberately said this. Um, and he said, it, uh, he said, I was in London last week and I had um, dinner with the, the chairman of Ikea. And after dinner, we went out and we had a fag. We went out to get a fag. Now, in American English, that's, that's shocking. Like, what the hell are you talking about? And it's derogatory. How dare you say that? But in British English, a fag is a cigarette. So he knew that I knew that's what it was. And so it wasn't so offensive. But um, again, these are just you know, words that you can mis easily misuse. And the meaning totally changes. Something as simple as the trunk of a car is the boot or the hood of a car is a bonnet. Like there's so many different words that mean the same thing. And that's just going, like you said, from the UK to here in the United States, having the firsthand knowledge of the translation is important. And I would imagine today, well, let me go back. I am fully with you on the concerns for AI in translation and beyond because what you're getting out is only as good as the garbage that's been fed in that. Where is that coming from? How dated is that? How contextually aware is that? What does the machine learn before it can turn around and give us something back? And then for what you're doing is the machine giving you back like the average of what it thinks out of all of these things, or is it, does it have the specific necessary knowledge? So I'm sure AI has its areas where it's more productive than others, but this certainly seems to me one off the top that would be dangerous. And honestly, I feel like that ties into some of the things that we've said before that I'm not necessarily sure it's always arrogance. I think sometimes it's a lack of awareness or a level of assumption, and, and those can be two different things. You know, here mm -hmm. in the United States, marketing companies often are taught to say that we are the best, we are the leader, this is what we do. So because that's how we're taught to speak here in very competitive landscapes to just assume that that's how the marketing would need to translate. I don't know if that's necessarily arrogant. That's an assumption and a lack of awareness, lack of preparation on how maybe we should translate or go to business somewhere else. I think you gave me an example in the previous conversation about the Ford Pinto. I don't think that was necessarily Ford being arrogant. That was probably somebody over there just checking a box without doing the research and they found out it was too late. It was probably laziness on their part more than anything else. And for people that it might just be thinking, wait a minute, Mike, what do you mean the Ford You're Pinto? First, yes. if you don't remember the Ford Pinto, you should probably look it up. A wonderful little car that loved to explode when you rear-ended it. So there's a series of issues there to begin with. But when the Pinto was sent to Brazil, I believe it was, there was a translation issue there with the name. Well, they used the word Pinto, which uh, again, worked perfectly fine in the US, but in Brazilian slang, uh, it means penis. Not the best name for a car. Probably not. A horse here in the United States and other countries, I'm sure, as well. But in Brazil, yeah, we probably want to pass that one over and do a little bit of research ahead of time. I love the call out, especially on the specificity of translation for me and then having a good translator. So very fortunate for me in an interrogation, what feels like lifetime ago now, multiple lifetimes ago, it was in Spanish, a common language that I unfortunately speak very little of. I needed a translator. Thankfully, my assistant human resources manager was available. So now I had somebody who could protect me a little bit from a company level who spoke the language. So it was, it was a wise decision. 
but it turned out to be a wiser decision because the woman who confessed to theft and was all documented, it was done. It, it absolutely, it happened, went home and had to come up for, to give her husband a reason why she no longer had a job. Mm. So she told her husband that I had threatened to have her deported and all of these other things, which number one, I didn't do, but number two, literally every word I said was filtered through this translator so I had a trusted, accurate translator who I believed was giving me everything accurately in one direction and then reporting it accurately the other. So when local law enforcement came to find out if I had really said these things, I was able to just point them towards my translator who mm. laughed and said, actually, no, I translated the entire conversation. Here's everything that was said going in both directions. So having that trustworthy resource who can do so accurately and then speak to what and how and why they did is it's really a representation of ourselves and our organization is so important. So for the people that might be interested in learning more about you, your podcast, your services, your expertise, and so forth, where can they go to learn more? Well, our website is auerbach-intl.com, A-U-E-R-B-A-C-H-I-N-T-L.com. My email is philip at P-H-I-L-I-P. And uh, we've got two phone numbers, one, one for the West Coast, one for the East Coast. The West Coast number is 415-592-0042. And the East Coast number is 267-865-6890. Congratulations on rattling off two phone numbers that fast. I just hit a button and it calls whoever I need to call. <laughs> so knowing two phone numbers that fast was impressive. We'll be sure to, to share all the links, all the numbers, all the way that people can access you in the show notes to make sure they can follow up with you as well. And sorry, and uh, Global Gurus, the podcast, uh, that's on our website. Uh, so you'd have to go to auerbachinternational.com uh, and then uh, uh, it's on media and then podcasts. We're simply auerbachinternational.com slash podcasts. And we'll show you that direct link so people can find it immediately without having to hunt around. Philip, I'm really happy that you had the time to share today. Thank you very much. It is great to see you again. And I really appreciate all the ideas that you shared with us. My pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. You're very welcome. Take care. We'll see you soon. Philip, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I truly appreciate it. Thank you for sharing your ideas, your opinions, your insights, your truly unique experience, and giving us so much to think about, learn, and apply when we are conducting business internationally or even working with other people from other cultures here domestically. And again, so many lessons like saving face that really should apply to all of our conversations, no matter who we're having them with or where in the world that we are. It never hurts to make sure we're being respectful, that we're helping people save face. And honestly, that if we have any doubt, we ask people questions. Because as long as it appears that we're genuinely trying to learn and understand where somebody else is coming from, they should appreciate and respect that. So Philip, thank you so much. And for everybody that listened, if you're interested in learning more, please check out Philip online, follow him, and of course, check out his podcast as well. Thank you to everybody who took the time to listen today. We truly appreciate it. Please do all the things the algorithms ask of us. Like the show, comment on the show, follow the show, subscribe, tell your friends and colleagues about it. We really appreciate it. If you, of course, if you have any feedback, please share it with us. We'd love to hear what you think. Something you like to want to see more of, something you want to see less of, changes you recommend, things you'd like us to do different. Please share and let us know your feedback is valuable to us as we're always looking to evolve and grow the show. Thank you very much. And of course, we can't go any 
anywhere without thanking our sponsors one more time. Thank you to Humantel. Please, when you have the time, go to Humantel.com. And after you've read the blogs and watched the videos and checked out the articles and peruse what they have, enter the code Inquasive25 when you're ready to purchase the industry-leading, top-of-class, self-paced online training to understand what people are likely thinking and feeling by accurately evaluating changes in their facial expressions and nonverbal communication within the context of the situation. Humatel.com and Quasive 25, I personally vouch for all of their training. Head over to Emotional Intelligence Magazine as well at ei-magazine.com for their catalog of articles, podcasts, interviews, webinars, books, and beyond. Everything you would ever want to know about emotional intelligence is right there for you. And of course, for our professional interviewers, please check out the International Association of Interviewers at certifiedinterviewer.com. That's where you can find all their latest events, news, legal updates, interviewer resources, networking opportunities, explore if joining the organization is right for you. And of course, learn more about the certified forensic interviewer designation, what it takes to qualify, and if it's right for you at this juncture in your career. Thank you all again for taking the time to listen to us today. We do truly appreciate it. Stay safe, take care of each other, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.